want to welcome our brother Armin Tomasian and his wife and family to our service today. I tried to get him to preach, but he said he wanted a break. He's on vacation away. So uh, I'll be preaching this morning and this evening, Lord willing. I want to ask you to turn in your Bible, please, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And before we come to read the scripture, seek the Lord in prayer together. Ask his help as we come to consider his word today. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come before you now with our Bibles open before you, we pray that you would do what we've just been singing to revive your work. That last hymn, that last stanza is somewhat haunting to our hearts when it asks the question, is zeal abating? Maybe we would ask the question, has there ever really been much zeal? We pray that you would make us a zealous people, faithful unto every good work, Pray that you would use your word today to speak to every heart. We pray that you would give us all that humility of heart and mind to receive your word as it is in truth, the word of God and not the words of men. We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you pull your calendar out, you'll find that there's only 32 more days and 2020 will finally be over. There have been hundreds of memes created on the internet to try to summarize and show us and explain to us how bad this year has been. I even heard a story recently about Thanksgiving of someone who every year has cooked their turkey in one of those plastic bags And lo and behold, 2020, what happens but the bag melts in the oven on their turkey, right? Only in 2020 could such a crazy thing happen. And so many of us are just counting down the days and we cannot wait. But the problem is that January 1st, 2021 will not bring an end to any of your problems. Because you see, none of the problems that we face are tied to a calendar. All of the problems that we know are tied in one way or another to the wickedness of man's heart. That's our problem. And nothing will ever be resolved until the Lord steps in. The only solution any of us have that we can hope in is for the Lord to intervene. He must step in. Turn your attention this morning to just simply one verse in Psalm 119, and it's the verse number 126. Psalm 119 and that verse number 126. We read here, It is time for the Lord to work, for they have made void thy law. It is time for the Lord to work, for they have made void thy law. If you look at some of the previous verses in this particular section of Psalm 119, uh, you'll see, for example, up in uh, verse number 122, also verse number 124, and also verse number 125, the psalmist here identifies himself as the Lord's servant. Well, it's always the job of a servant to work. It's not uncommon necessarily to see the servant hard at work and the boss watching, the boss not working. That's why he hired a servant. He got a servant so he doesn't have to work. He pays the servant to work. It's the servant's job to work. But yet if you look also in these verses, you'll see in verse number 121, verse 122, here this one who identifies himself as the servant 
also speaks of those that have oppressed him. Verse 121, leave me not to mine oppressors. Verse 122, let not the proud oppress me. Uh, There are times simply when the task becomes so great for the servant that the servant is not up to the task. The servant is not able to accomplish the task. And in those scenarios, the master must step in. The master has to intervene. Just this past Friday, uh, Machen was helping me on a job site, and he, he wanted to use one of my saws to cut a board, and I had drawn the line exactly where the cut needed to be made, and Machen took the saw, and he began to cut, and almost immediately was crooked and off the line. It wasn't straight. It was no good. And I had to intervene. I had to step in. I had to take the saw, and I had to fix the mistake, or the board would have just simply never. This verse, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord to step in and to work. He's desperate for the Lord to intervene. Those around. the psalmist to deal with. It's beyond him. He cannot do it. He's not up to the task. Well, when you and I consider everything that's happened in the world today, I think this is one of those verses in the Bible that for each of us needs to rise to the top of our prayer list. Lord, it is time for you to work because they have made void your law. We're in a desperate place in our nation and in this world. And this morning, I want us to take some time to consider this verse more closely. And I want to begin this morning with a first point that might not necessarily be intuitive to you. It's not stated directly. And I believe it's also something that's instructive for us all to pay attention to from this text, and a great mercy to us all. And that is the first thing I want you to see out of this verse is the patience of God. The patience of our God. Again, I say that's not stated directly in the text. This verse doesn't tell us that God is patient. But I believe we do understand it here by implication. The very nature of God is that he is long-suffering. The very nature of God is that he is patient. And if that were not true, if God was not patient, if God was not long-suffering, none of us would be here. None of us would be here. You weren't saved when you were a day old. You, You sinned so many times. Most of us are in situations where you probably heard the gospel many, many times before you were ever actually converted. And if God were not patient, if God were not long-suffering, well, in your actions, you made void God's law. But God did not take you off the scene of time immediately. Now, step back from that, and we have to look in Scripture, and we, we do understand and we do know that our, deser- our sin deserves the immediate outpouring of the wrath of God. That's what our sin deserves. And... and Looking through the scriptures, we do see God working that way sometimes. Perhaps the most striking and vivid example that comes to us is that story in the Old Testament of Uzzah. He reached out and he he touched the ark. And immediately, he was slain of the Lord. Nadab and Abihu come and they offer a false sacrifice to the Lord. And immediately, they're slain. The sons of... uh, There were some... uh, The whole descendants of Korah were immediately swallowed up in the earth. The earth literally opened up and and swallowed them whole as an immediate judgment of God. The the men from Beth Shemesh, just over 50,000, immediately slain of the Lord for looking into the Ark of the Covenant. When Moses struck the rock, God immediately dealt with that sin, immediately gave him 
punishment. When Jonah fled from Nineveh, God immediately stepped in and dealt with that sin and, and punished Jonah. And, and were we to think, well, that's just, that's just the God of the Old Testament. We come to Acts chapter 5 and we see Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Ghost and God smote them. And we look at all those examples and other examples in Scripture of, of God's immediate and swift judgment on sin. And we have to look at all those things and come to the conclusion that God is not unjust in doing that. Those sinners got the just wage of their sin. The wages of sin is death. And it is right and just only for God to immediately execute judgment on those that make void his law. And so when we read here the psalmist crying out in desperation, Lord, it's time for you to work because people have made void your law. Well, it's a great mercy that God is patient and that God is long-suffering because this text implies that there are people that they have made void God's law. They are continuing to live as if God's law is void and God has not yet dealt with them. God has not yet in time punished their sin. Psalm 103 verse 8 tells us that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. And for that, we have to rejoice. Because what happened to Nadab and Abihu, what happened to Uzzah, what happened to the sons of Korah, what happened to the men of Bethshemesh, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, every single one of us know that that, that should happen to us. We deserve the wrath the punishment of God. But all of those examples are exceptions to prove the rule that God is slow to anger. God is plenteous in mercy. God is gracious. He's long-suffering to us. And as we consider that, we, we come to understand from the Scripture that God is patient, that God is long-suffering. The Lord is good in all his works and tender mercy. I'm sorry, the Lord is good to all and tender and and his tender mercies are over all his works. That phrase in Psalm 145 there, his his tender mercies, is the word compassion. God is compassionate to those that he has created. And as we consider this truth, we can't misunderstand, we can't come to wrong conclusions from what I've just said. To say that God's patience is a display of his goodness is not for us to mistakenly understand that God's immediate exercise and immediate judgment and wrath is somehow not his goodness. Because for God to judge sin is a display of his goodness. He must eradicate sin or he is not good. He must deal with sin. He must punish sin or he is not good. But yet God but he's patient, slow to anger. Also, the fact that God is patient, the fact that he's long-suffering, I believe is a means. The Lord strengthens and he purifies his church through the fires of persecution. It's undeniable in history. The Lord sets up wicked men to rule over nations. The Lord set up, for example, in history, Mary Tudor, who became known as Bloody Mary. In July 1550, God set her on the throne. God is the one who sets up rulers and puts down rulers. The heart of the king is in the Lord's hand, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wants it to go. And Bloody Mary went down in history as one who killed hundreds and hundreds of Protestant church leaders simply for their faith in Christ. And then in the aftermath of the Reformation, countless others gave their life for Christ. They were persecuted by wicked men, wicked rulers who had made void God's law. And the Lord's people are persecuted by those who make void the law of God, those who simply don't care about God's law. It doesn't mean anything to them. 
It's like Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? God means nothing to them. And the Lord's people mean nothing to them. But when wicked, when, when wicked men come against the Lord's people, what are we forced to do but to trust the Lord? To, to exercise and, and be increased in faith toward the Lord. And I say the Lord uses the fact that he is patient to the ungodly. And he lets ungodliness continue as a means of strengthening his own church. Because if the Lord dealt with all wickedness immediately and, and just eradicated it all and stamped it out every place it poked its head up, well, we as, as the church, we as the body of Christ, need to have the same kind of, of faith and trusting the Lord in times of difficulty and trial and persecution. But yet the Lord uses the persecution of his church as a means of strengthening and, and purifying his church. And so the very fact that the psalmist prays this, Lord, there are those that make void your law. It's time for you to step in and intervene. I believe it does show us that the Lord is, is patient. But I want to change gears here in, in homiletics I think a homiletics professor would say that I'm on the clutch and I'm grinding the gears because we're completely changing directions. But I want to come to a second point this morning that we see from this passage of Scripture. And that is we see the indignation of God's people. Almost comes to the Lord with, with his argument, Lord, it's time for you to work. There's people that have made void your law. That's his argument. This is the psalmist's righteous indignation against those that have trespassed and broken the law of God. You and I do very well to learn from Scripture, to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Psalm 139, 21, the psalmist there says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. I hate them that hate thee. And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee. This is the psalmist's attitude. This has to be our attitude. I hate those that hate you. I'm grieved by those things that grieve you. Lord, it's time for you to work. Because they have made your law. Are you grieved by the headlines that pop up on the your news feed? Do those things grieve you? Or have we just collectively become so callous to sin around us that it doesn't faze us anymore? It's just, yeah, that's what people do. Does it bother you? Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I was really just struck with this Bible reading, it was, I guess, two or three weeks ago, Pastor Kimbrough read this. But it fits in this context here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Well, what kind of perilous times? How bad will they be? Well, verse 2, men shall be lovers of their own selves. That sounds familiar covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. You children, pay attention to the next part, because in this long list of really horrible, bad stuff, it says disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, that just simply means without any self-control, a complete lack of self-control. Fierce, brutal, violence. Despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady. That word heady just really just kind of means being reckless. High-minded. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. Go to church on Sunday but denying the power thereof. And 
Paul's admonition to Timothy is from those kinds of people, turn away from them. Don't have anything to do with them. But yet that list reads as if Paul was watching tomorrow's broadcast on CNN. That list is tomorrow's newspaper that Paul wrote so long ago. But when you see those kinds of things, does that not make you angry? Do those sins not stir you up? I would submit to you, if the sins so prominent in our culture today don't stir you up to, to a place of righteous indignation, you have good cause to question whether or not you have a new heart. If there is not a righteous indignation against the sin that is just so prevalent in just every place around us, are you born again? If, if the spirit within you does not respond rejecting that, it has to. You wonder how, how so many people today could support such wickedness. About four days after the election, I was listening to iHeartRadio. Middle of the day, commercials come on. One of the commercials that came on was a list of the top five shows that had been streamed that week. And so I'm listening to them rattle off these five shows. Well, one, I've never watched any of those five shows. But as I, I listened to that list, I thought, that's the most vile stuff on television. And that's the top five. That's the, that's the most popular. And my family will attest to the fact I sit and I'll flip through 150 channels and there's literally nothing worth watching. It's just garbage. It's just garbage. It's all garbage. But yet all those networks are still in business. They still get ad revenue. Somebody's watching it. Garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. And you wonder, how can there be so many wicked people in the world? Well, man, look around. This is what they crave. This is what they want. They want those shows. They want that violence. They want that wickedness. They want that brutality. They want that immorality. They want to see fornication out in front of them. They love it. They're lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. And they worship these things. This verse goes beyond the fact that people have just broken God's law. They void God's law. They don't care about the Lord. This particular word is interestingly used in, in the Old Testament. Almost half the times this verb, uh, make void, half the times this particular verb is used is in regard to breaking God's covenant. Uh, one writer, it was interesting the way he put this, he says, it does not mean to break in the sense of an exhibition of physical strength. So when it says they have made void your law, it's not like, like somebody breaking something in half, but it's used in the sense to violate or renege on revealed truth. Well, the law of God is revealed truth. And they have violated revealed truth. That law, the law of God, is written upon the heart of every man. And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that that law that has been written on the heart, man consciously and purposefully suppresses that truth of God's law in his unrighteousness. He hates it. And he wants to put it away. And he makes it void. People don't write checks anymore. But when you write a check, if you mess up on the check, you write the wrong number, you write the wrong amount, you write the wrong thing of who it's to, well, you write on the check void, V-O-I-D, across the check. And that piece of paper now is worthless. It's not worth anything. And that's what man has done with the law of God, just write across it void. It doesn't mean anything to them. I quoted Pharaoh ago when, when Pharaoh's response was, who is the Lord? that I should obey him. What do I have to do with this guy? I don't care about the Lord. I don't care what he says. It doesn't matter to me. It's void to me. And that's the attitude of our nation. And I wonder as we consider that attitude, does it drive us to this place of, of righteous indignation? 
when we see a culture wholly given to idolatry, when we see false worship everywhere, when you can't, work, when you can't turn on network television for more than five minutes without hearing the Lord's name taken in vain, when the whole concept of a Lord's Day is pretty much 100% gone from our nation. And don't think Chick-fil-A is all this righteous thing for keeping their stores closed on Sundays because they're up pressure washing the parking lot right now. Right? So I mean, this isn't a, a Sabbath thing. Respect for authority is gone. Abortion, a plague on our land. Even the Hallmark Channel now has sodomite characters as the main characters in their movies. Immorality every place. Gambling, other forms of stealing every place. Truth falling in the streets. Covetous greed consumes everything in our society. And that has to stir us up. It has to get us all worked up. They've made void thy law. But I want to ask you a question. Can you honestly say that you are righteously indignant against those things? Or is the real truth that you actually contribute to those things? You know, it's one thing for me as a preacher to stand up here and cry out against the sins of people that will never come through that back door to hear anything that I have to say. And I can go down this list, and everybody jump up and amen, shout hallelujah. But what about us? What about us? You know, since this pandemic has hit, I don't know of a church that is not quoted Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. And then the sermon goes about all the ungodliness that's everywhere out there around us. And that's the wrong sermon. Because the Bible verse does not say, when Solomon prayed that prayer of dedication to the temple, he did not say, if the Canaanites would only turn from their wicked ways, then God would hear from heaven and heal their land. He's not talking about those outside the body of Christ. He's not talking about those outside the church. And so it begs the question, what about us? What about us? Are we, are you, am I, category, am I part of the problem? of those that have made void God's law. You know, you, you, we claim, you claim to be a worshiper of God, but what about the secret idols in the heart? What about the idol of possessions that even plagues people sitting in the pews of a church? What about the idol of, can I get really close to home in our pandemic-stricken world? What about the idol of personal safety? What about the idol of health? Really, what about that idol? What about the idol of personal recognition? What about the idol of self-pride? It's in the church. Those are in the church. Have we made God's law? Do we prefer false worship? Do Do you wish that the church would just spice things up a little bit to get more people in? You know, do we have to be so simple? Do we have to be so dry? Do we have to be so boring? Do we have to be so, can we not just do this, that, or the other thing and and get people to come? Do we prefer false worship? Have we adopted in recent months a false sense of worship? Sermon audio is a wonderful thing. Sermon audio is a great blessing, but it's not corporate worship. A live streaming service is a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a tremendous technology. It's a manifestation of God's common grace. I don't deny that. But a government filter can turn that off immediately. And then what? Then what are you going to do? 
Armin and I yesterday were talking about how dangerous it is to give up the liberty of assembling together to worship. Part of the second commandment is, is how we properly worship God. And part of that has to do with our, our corporate gathering together as the Lord's people. There, there's an intangible aspect of the Lord's blessing. It's God's people come together, fellowshipping together in corporate worship. You've sat on your couch. It's not the same thing on Zoom. It's not the same thing by distance. It's not the same. It's a blessing. And it can be used of the Lord. I don't deny any of those things. But if, if we give up the, the liberty of, of meeting together as the Lord's people, what are we giving up? Because if they can take that away, if they can take away us meeting together, then they can surely take away the technology. They can take away all of it. And if you have trouble coming to church, you're going to have a lot more trouble finding us when we're meeting in the woods someplace. Or if you don't have the gumption to show up to the house of God, where's going to be your gumption when there's real persecution and you have to follow the, the thumbtacks on the back of a tree to get to the right place in the middle of the woods someplace? like they do in other countries, like the underground church, like the secret churches. have to meet underground, and every single time they meet together, they know that this could be the last day that I'm alive on planet Earth, because... What better way to go than with the Lord's people being mowed down? Right? Do you have that gumption for the house of God? You have that conviction. Do you have that conviction to worship your Savior? Or does it really not matter to you that much? It really just doesn't matter to you that much. And you can really just take it or leave it. You take the Lord's name in vain by blaspheming his promises, forsaking the Lord in any way to make the Lord a light thing, to say the Lord doesn't matter, to say the Lord is How many Christians, professing Christians, see Sunday is just another family day? It's the Lord's, it, it, it's, you know, the Lord's day, yeah, but it's a family day. You check off a morning box, I showed up to church, what more does the Lord want from me? Again, what gumption do you have to serve and sacrifice to, to deal with, especially in our day when it is real life now. There are states that won't let people meet together for church. It's, it's real. Like 10 years ago, we used to talk about this might happen, and everybody just kind of wrote crazy preacher talking crazy talk. Well, no, here we are. What's your gumption? What's your conviction for corporate worship with the Lord's people? Do you have any conviction? It's easy. Now. It's easy now. But it's not going to stay that way. Christians display a despising of authority that God has placed over them. How many professing Christians their responsibility in disciplining their children? How many children live in really what amounts to rebellion and hatred toward their parents? Every chore is pulling teeth. Every rule the parent gives, the child just rolls their eyes. Every math assignment is argued and fussed against. Every spelling test like pulling teeth. All the school just fussing and arguing and fighting. Disobedient to parents is in that big, long, bad list in Second Timothy 3. In your heart, you made void God's law by your rebellion against authority. You know, we, we 
we're not killing people. But what kind of spiritual suicide is there in neglecting the means of grace? What about immorality in the church? What about modesty in the church? You folks know I do testing with homeschool families. and I've sat in that back room there sometimes. I've got Christian moms come in dressed in stuff that really only their husbands should ever see. And they're out running around in public. Yoga pants and shorty shorts. Out, just nothing wrong with it. Where's modesty? Where's a sense of, of personal dignity? Where's a sense of protecting the, the chastity of our neighbor? Even in the church, it's a problem. How many Christians rob God in their tithes and offerings? It's the Lord's money anyway. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, and, and you tithe, If you look at your budget and you say, you know, I can't, I can't afford to give to the Lord. Well, the real truth is you can't afford to not give to the Lord. This is kind of anecdotal. I don't have a spreadsheet to show you, but it's anecdotal. But as you give to the Lord, your car breaks down less. Your medical bills aren't less. And that makes sense on paper, but... The Lord blesses those that are cheerful givers to Him. How many Christians live believing the lie of the devil? It's lies. Your children, young people, you know, cheating on your schoolwork is lying. Cheating on your schoolwork is stealing. It's claiming to present something that belongs to you that really doesn't belong. How many Christians covet recognition, position, power, all the rest of those things? Does that list of sins cause any righteous indignation? Are we, are we guilty of making void God's law? The psalmist here in this verse expresses his anger over that. Anybody that is made void, God's law. They just disregard it. They don't care about it. It doesn't mean anything to them. They don't have any respect for God. I'm afraid it's true that even inside the church, even inside the house of God, we can be guilty of these things. I say it's one thing to point the finger and cry about all the wickedness there on the news and out in the world. Expect that. What do you expect sinners to do? I'm, somewhat, I'm sometimes just baffled at people that get so shocked and, and, and bent out of shape about the wickedness of wicked people. Well, what do you expect from them? That's what wicked people are. They're wicked. That's what they do. They do wicked stuff. What really should work us up is when we... But I wanted to see, lastly, I want to finish this morning looking at the desire of God's people. What is the desire of God's people? It's time for the Lord to work. That's what we have to have. That's the desire of, of God's people. Because we know that nothing will change unless the Lord works. If I, if I just let Machen keep cutting that line, that board would have never fit. It was, it was just all wrong. I mean, I love Machen. I'm not trying to throw Machen under the bus, but he can't cut a straight line. Right? And somebody had to intervene. Somebody had to step in. And somebody had to stop it. It was just, I mean, he was getting farther and farther away from the line. It was just getting worse and worse. And is that where we are? Is it not just getting worse and worse? And our desire has to be for the Lord to step in. But notice... Notice this desire is not, it's not the arm of the flesh, is it? It's time for thee, Lord, to put a Republican in office, for they have made void thy law. It's time for thee, Lord, to give Trump a second term, for they have made void thy law. That's not what the Bible says. 
The psalmist is not concerned about keeping the Senate. You notice that? The psalmist does not give two twits about the election in Georgia. He doesn't care. That, that's not the burden of his heart. He probably cares about that if he were alive today. But that's not the burden of his heart. You know, the psalmist is not all worked up that, man, his vote for governor didn't pan out. He wished that other guy would have would have got the governor's mansion. He's not appealing to the arm of the flesh. That's not his desire. His desire is, Lord, you have to intervene. You have to step in. Lord, you have to do something. Because we can't do it. And we have to come to terms with the fact that unless the Lord works, nothing will ever change. Nothing will ever change. It will just continue getting worse unless the Lord works. Wickedness will continue to abound more and more. Because you see, we cannot change the hearts of men. We can't do it. The Lord has to do that. Look with me, please, at 1 Corinthians 4. I want you to see what Paul says there to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 4, he he mentions something about the gospel being hidden. In, in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, he says, if our gospel is hidden, who's it hidden from? Well, it's hidden from those that are lost. And then in verse 4, he gives a description of those that are lost. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not. This is where they are. The gospel's hidden from them because they're, they're blinded because they don't believe. Unless, that's the word lest there, the only remedy is for the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God shine unto them. That is the only remedy to deal with this blindness that they have. It's not that they need more light. Shine all the light you want. They don't have the capacity to receive light because they are blind. And there is only one way that that blindness can be dealt with, and that is the glorious gospel of Christ has to come to them. Men will stay in their blindness without that regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing else, nothing else is going to change the hearts of men. And in some ways, this, this brings the whole message this morning. God is long-suffering and God is patient. There's, there's no denying that from Scripture. But this verse tells us a time will come when God's patience will run out. A, a time will come when God will no longer be patient. He will step in. Lord, now is the time for you to work because they've made void your law. Step in. The Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. God will step in. He will. God works in a perfect time. God has a time, and he will work. You remember in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Abraham. You'll find it all in Genesis chapter 15. And, and part of that covenant, part of the promise that God gave to Abraham was, all this land will be yours. All of it, but not yet. How come not yet? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not full. The Amorites, a representation, they were the, the largest, most powerful among the Canaanites. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You can't have the land yet. It's going to be yours, but not yet. And what happened? Just before the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan into Jericho, one of, one of the things that Moses
God finally came to that time, his perfect time. God made a promise in the Garden of Eden to send a Redeemer. But it was 4,000 years before, to use Paul, the fullness of time came. But yet when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. God kept And God worked. And the day of the Lord was at hand. Joel tells us of, of a day. He says, alas for the day, longing for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand as a destruction from the Almighty shall come. The Lord will work in his, in his time. The Lord has a time when he will work. Yet we also have to understand, and I think we understand from this verse, God will work as people cry to him. If we have righteous indignation against sin, well, here's the desire of the heart of the Lord's people. It's time for thee, Lord, to work. This is a prayer. This whole section, 121 to 128, it's a prayer to the Lord. A prayer against his oppressors. Lord, I'm your servant. It's time for you to work. They've made void your law. It's time for you to step in. God has promised to intervene with his people, has he not? And you, you look at Ezekiel 36 just as an example. In Ezekiel 36, the Lord saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He promises to do it. But then he says, I will get to be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. You know, one thing we have to look at with the eye of faith is, is to understand that it might not be in our lifetime, but God will intervene. It might not be while we're still here, but God will intervene. Change the desire of the hearts of the Lord. Lord, it's time for you to work. Because if you don't work, nothing's going to be done. But something has to be done. Lord's the only one that can do it. The Lord may very well allow things to get far, far worse than they are. But again, even in that, it doesn't mean he's not working. You see, when the Lord sent the children of Israel into Babylon, the Lord was working. The Lord was doing something. The Lord was actually doing a great thing in punishing his people and sending them into captivity. I hope you'll be here this evening. I'm I'm planning to preach from a text in the book of Habakkuk that, that carries on this theme of the truth from Scripture. God is going to work on behalf of his people. God has worked on behalf of his people. There still is yet a day of the Lord to be seen where the Lord in in miraculous circumstances works on behalf of his people and he intervenes and he rights the wrongs. That day is ahead of us. We hasten that day. We pray for the hastening of that day. God will simply never forsake his people. He doesn't leave us alone. We read in the Bible, do we not, that even in the valley of the shadow of death the Lord's with us. That's why the Lord's people can stay calm. This is why the Lord's people can can look at death and say, I'm ready for that. This is why the Lord's people can have a calmness about them to go to church on a Sunday morning knowing that that might be the last service they ever attend because those guys with guns might come in. They might find us this time and mow us down. And I'm ready to go. I don't know how much you've thought about it. Lydia and I have had serious conversations about this. I don't mean just casual small talk, but I mean, I mean serious stuff. And I have to be very careful. And I'm, I'm. F- Yet the Lord's people can 
and have that calmness about them. Because the Lord doesn't forsake us. The Lord does work on behalf of His people. And you know there's a lot worse things than death. A lot worse things than death. Because you see, for, for me, dying's not the end. Dying's only the beginning of the good part. Do we live that way? Do we think that way? Do we really set our affections on things above? Or are we so tied to here that we substantively and in essence, we would never say it, we would never admit to it because we know it's wrong. But in essence, in our own heart, we've made void God's law. Are we guilty of this? God doesn't forsake his people, though. God will earnestly work on behalf of his people when his people earnestly seek him. May this be the prayer that challenges each of our hearts this morning and put these words of the psalmist back to the Lord. It's time for thee, Lord, to work. For they have made void thy law. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we as our service this morning, we know we dealt with some hard words, challenging things to us, very convicting things to us because we know the sinfulness, well, we know some of the sinfulness that's in our own heart. And we know that we so desperately fall short of what you have required of us. But we thank you that even in a hard word like this, uh, we can be thankful that there is a balm in Gilead. That there is forgiveness with you. That we can come having, uh, even having made void your law in, in the worst of ways. And you've given us that promise if we confess our sins that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we would even come this morning as a corporate body our sins and thankful that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we ask that you would just simply go from heart to heart dealing with sin where we have really just made void your law by our very actions, by our attitudes, by our thoughts, by our, our motives, by our intents. And we pray that you would step in and work on our behalf. That you would revive us again. That we would stand in fear and awe before you. We pray that you'll bless us this evening as we come back to the scriptures and Lord willing, hopefully look at a much more encouraging aspect of your working, that we would know your blessing as we meet again tonight. We ask in Jesus' name.